Dr. Steven Rosen is someone that I've interviewed before in an internship that I was doing a while ago. So I'm pretty familiar with his work on proprioceptive dialogue, which is um, something that I wrote about in an article. And we'll be getting into it later in this episode. But on his website, he describes himself as a philosopher, psychologist, and a poet of science dedicated to embodied communication and community. I love that you call yourself a poet of science. I love that. <laughs> but um, Stephen's work is right up my alley. And if you follow my work and if you're a listener of mine, it will likely be much of interest to you too. So welcome to Moon Juice, Stephen. I'm very excited to have you on. Happy to be here. So I feel like in a lot of ways I can relate to your work because I like to see how things connect, even if it seems like they can't possibly connect. And I love how you talk about how you've tested the boundaries between so many supposedly opposing things. And I mean, like psychology and philosophy, they, they definitely go hand in hand, but like testing the boundary between psychology, philosophy and physics, and then also like fiction and nonfiction, I love, how you are blurring the lines between the two. So I don't know much about parapsychology. So I'm curious if you could kind of explain it from the beginner's stance and also go into more of uh, your studies. Mm -hmm. Well, parapsychology is the study of uh, paranormal, so-called paranormal phenomena like telepathy or clairvoyance or precognition, which means seeing into the future. I was drawn to it not because um, I have a deep interest in those phenomena per se, but because it challenges, as you said, I'm very interested in challenging the boundaries of ordinary thinking, of conventional the conventional way of viewing the world. And those phenomena very definitely challenge the conventional thinking about space and time and how we normally process information by sending each other signals through space and time. If parapsychological phenomena are real, space and time takes a backseat to a kind of connectedness that is not limited by conventional space and time. So yeah, if I could read your mind without you sending me a signal, a sound wave or a light wave, that would definitely challenge our ordinary way of thinking. And clairvoyance, the same thing, knowing at a distance, what's knowing what's happening at a distance without having any conventional channel of communication to tell you about that event. Seeing into the future, again, that challenges the boundaries, the ordinary experience of time. And by the same token, a field like modern physics challenges those boundaries as well because when you get down to it, in modern physics and quantum mechanics, for example, that stu which studies the world of the very small, space and time, as we know it, 
do not exist. If you go far enough down into the microcosm, into the microscopic world, space and time, break up. And this is not, you know, paranormal. This is not outside the limits of science. It's at the very core of science. So, and I think that's why so many people have been fascinated by modern physics. Modern physics is, is no longer an esoteric area in the sense that it's a specialization that only a few people are interested in. You see it mentioned on TV programs and, you know, uh, what's the name of that uh, television series? Um, just trying to recall the name. A very popular TV series was thematized along the lines of modern physics. So, yeah. Was it difficult to study this in an academic setting? Because it sounds taboo, right? Especially in the world of academia. Yeah. Well, I write about that on my website. <laughs> um, my history in academia, given my interests, yeah, it was it was quite challenging because um, I did not sit comfortably within a well-defined discipline. I was in the psychology department, but I had an experience in the early 70s, in 1972 in particular, that seemed to change everything for me, a kind of experience of how connections were made that took me beyond the discipline in which I was trained, psychology. That's what brought me into philosophy and in particular, the philosophy of science. And yeah, I mean, when it comes to being promoted, they want you, you, you make them feel uncomfortable if um, you stray too far beyond the bounds of your given discipline. So it took a while, but I did get tenure, even though I'd started teaching parapsychology, I had a parapsychology course going for a number of years and it started before I got tenure. That was brave of me, I have to say. I would have taken that me, class. <laughs> oh, that class had a great response over the years. A lot of people really enjoyed it. And so eventually, so I was promoted, I got tenure, I was promoted, and then it was a question of whether I'd be promoted to full professor. And it took a visit from a colleague of mine, a man named Brian Josephson, who won a Nobel Prize in physics, visit the college and attend a meeting at the college with, you know, <laughs> Uh, people from the science department, the dean of faculty, and so forth. That year I was promoted. So, you know, it was not easy, and it's not uh, a pleasant feeling being misunderstood by people, but, you know, that was the path I chose. That was, well, I say that was the path I chose. The fact is that it chose me in a way. It was almost like I felt compelled to do it. There was some kind of intuitive compulsion to bring me down that road. And <clears throat> I don't um, regret one minute of it. I, I really feel lucky that I'm able to say here in 2021 
that when this all started for me, this path around 1972, I feel lucky that I've done what I've wanted to do and I don't regret a minute of it. That's amazing. Right, Asia, what more can you say about it? I, think I understand what you're saying because you also have to bring in a number of areas to facilitate your you know, fulfillment. And so, yeah, you, you definitely have to <clears throat> transgress boundaries. Yeah, well, I think by nature, to understand how things work to a certain extent, it's, it's an interdisciplinary practice because like on my end, understanding acting, I understood acting to a certain degree through studying philosophy and existentialism. And also by studying various different like spiritual disciplines, it really um, catalyzed or catapulted, I wanna say, um, how I approach the craft. And I was actually having this conversation today that, you know, when you have enough knowledge, like you don't have to mechanically think so much. It just ends up becoming an intuition. So uh, I'm curious, like, how do you, how do you explain um, these kinds of phenomena like ESP or like in a, in a, I don't know, explainable way? Like, how would you teach, how would you teach all of that kind of stuff? Well, I would say space and time aren't what you think they are. I'd start with that. If the ordinary um, <clears throat> thinking and assumptions about space and time were true, then those phenomena, telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, would not be possible. And so people who were claiming to have had those experiences wouldn't be credible if space and time worked in the conventional way, but it doesn't. So, and that's what we're learning from uh, quantum mechanics. And so I'd start by talking about that. I wouldn't try to convince anyone that any, any individual's claims about seeing the future or reading anyone's minds. I wouldn't try to convince anyone about that because I think there are people who will, like any other area, there are gonna be people who will try to convey the impression that they have knowledge that they don't or that they have abilities that they don't. There are people like that in the real world. Mm -hmm. And so, but, in, but if, if we're learning that at the very heart and core of science, and again, I'm thinking about physics, space and time and communication, therefore, because communication depends upon space and time, are not operating in the ordinary way, but connections can be made. <clears throat> because of this, this nullification of space and time as we ordinarily think of them, connections can be made that indeed, at least in principle, make it possible 
for extraordinary ways of relating to each other. So that would be the tack I would take. And it was the approach I took in the years that I taught parapsychology. I, I taught it over a span of 15 years, accredited course in the City University of New York. So yeah. And but your interest in philosophy would it would seem to be natural for you to entertain similar ideas about those phenomena. And I think you mentioned existentialism. That's another area because existentialism brings out some paradoxical truths about lived human experience. So I think what you're saying, I could see where we would think of each other as, you know, sort of on the same wavelength about those kinds of things. Yeah, well, you know, existentialism, I think it's, a, so for me, like, at least with my journey in philosophy, um, I was, I was very drawn to like Eastern philosophy, which gets categorized as religion. Um, but I think the more that I got comfortable with like the human condition, like the not so pretty human condition, the more I, I got interested in existentialism because a lot of it is just so uh, depressing. I think that uh, my favorite, actually, my favorite philosophy is Taoism because it applies so much to art and actually literally everything, uh, depending on which philosopher that you you study because uh, that that discipline or that philosophy goes really deep and there's a lot of historical layers to it um but i also think that Taoism applies to what you were studying as well or parapsychology as well it's just ultimately i feel like a lot of the a lot of these disciplines are saying the same or they're talking kind of about the same thing but just in different ways or taking different approaches to it would you say so? Yes, and your instinct, your instinct there makes a lot of sense to me. I did a paper uh, a couple of years ago called Quantum Gravity and Taoist Philosophy. It ties current research in physics to Taoism. And what I bring out in the paper is that existential phenomenology, existentialism, phenomenological philosophy, people like Heidegger, Merleau-Ponty, that approach to philosophy is rooted in Taoism. So we have, what do we have there? We have existentialism, existential phenomenology, we have physics, and we have Taoism, and they're all <laughs> sort of woven together. So yeah, I definitely see the connection with Taoism. What, what did you discover while testing the boundaries between fiction and nonfiction? Well, for me, remember I said things changed for me around 19, in 1972. I can be specific about it. Okay. And what changed, 
I started, I had just gotten my doctorate in, in psychology and I was looking at the relationship between psychology and philosophy and thinking about thermodynamics. It's an area of, of science that studies um, exchanges of energy, how systems can exchange energy. And I was mulling over those possibilities and came across a certain structure in mathematics, in topology, called the Möbius strip, or I usually pronounce it Möbius strip. And that should be, that's gotten uh, to be fairly familiar to people, this paradoxical strip that looks like it has two sides to it, but the two sides flow together as a single side. So that became a way for me to understand how things fit together. Paradox. And what, was, what became important to me in my writing, I wanted to write a book, fiction, a novel that kind of brought my ideas to the attention of the general public. And because I was so influenced by this paradoxical Mobius strip where inside becomes outside and the two sides flow together, I decided to structure that book along the Mobius strip. I decided to make my novel into a Mobius strip and in doing so, the fiction became nonfiction because I was writing in the fiction, in the narrative, I was writing about an author, a mysterious author, who in the end turned out to be the author of that book. So you go from fiction to the nonfictional fact that I'm the author writing the book. So the boundary between fiction and nonfiction broke down in that Mobius way. That book is called The Mobius Seed and was published in 1985, my goodness, a wow. long time ago. <laughs> so have you heard of breaking the, the fourth wall? No. So um, when you're on stage, like breaking the third wall is when the character is talking to the audience, then breaking the fourth wall, or maybe it's the fifth wall. I think it's the fourth wall, it's one of the two. But breaking the fourth wall is when the character is talking to the writer, so the creator of the story. So I think that's an interesting way of breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. And I think another story that breaks the fourth wall is the Truman Show. So there, like, there's all these creative ways of, of the, character within the story talking to yeah. their own creator i got it and the truman show was good that i do i do know about yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's an excellent film yeah so yeah other examples of mobius relationships in in your field and acting in mm -hmm. literature. or also just in general reality would you say because i think a lot of life is like there is a very thin veil between imagination and reality. Would you say so? 
And mm-hmm. I think your imagination to an extent creates your reality. Um, and, you know, I think also like with some people that kind of get like very caught up in their creative imagination and kind of projecting that onto reality can kind of go into a psychosis as well, right? <laughs> the thing there is- What? I think if imagination is not grounded, if it flies off into the stratosphere and le- leaves the body behind, then it is not connected to reality. But when imagination is grounded in the body, in bodily experience, that's reality. And um, so I'm thinking of Jung. Mm -hmm. A lot of people know about Carl Jung, the psychologist who, um, to whom the body was very important, embodied reality. So yeah. How do you how do you explain some like weird phenomenon though that that isn't necessarily congruent with how other people's experience of reality is, especially since sometimes we can have just these very um, I guess you can call it paranormal experiences like um, like. I don't know, some people have these kind of like psychedelic experiences that end up tying in with, or or just, it's just a very different kind of like experience of reality than how someone else might experience it. So like, I guess, how can you, uh, I guess, what's the fine line between like an embodied reality versus an experience that may be considered paranormal but isn't what someone, what the majority of other people could experience. Well, you know, if it's a private reality, if I have a psychedelic experience that only affects me, then it wouldn't be considered paranormal in the sense that a parapsychologist use that term. If we can have a shared reality, I mean, I could have a dream that could be wild and and just completely out of keeping with the way we usually think. That's one thing, that's a private experience. But if we could share a dream, if we could have the same dream in specific detail, that would be, you know, something else entirely. And that that would be, grist for parapsychology, shared dreams and so forth. Wow, so, but if that's only experienced between two people, that would still be considered a private reality, do you think, if it's only shared between like so many people? If it's only shared between two people, well, there's a phenomenon in psychology uh, called folie à deux, which is, uh, a French term meaning folly, folly for two. Two people are caught up in a departure from everyone else's reality, and it is used in, in a, a pathological sense. And it, it isn't corresponding to the broader reality. It's something that two people, it's a delusion, a shared delusion 
Um, but people, a, a mother and child, for example, one of the most common forms of psychic experience or paranormal experience is a communication between mother and child that goes beyond the bound, bounds of ordinary space and time, ordinary reality. And um, such cases have been documented. And, um, you know, there's something to them in all likelihood. It's controversial, not everybody agrees, but um, I think there may very well be something to them. Do you think this stuff is controversial until there can be hard science approved or documented by some sort of hard science? Well, for a number of years, I was in an organization called the Parapsychological Association, a scientifically oriented parapsychology group conducting research, conducting studies of these phenomena. In some cases, uh, careful research has been done that seems to um, support claims of paranormal experience. So there is some evidence for that in the literature, some scientific evidence but you know, Asia, I eventually left the Parapsychological Association because my feeling is that if you really want to get anywhere in that field, you have to reconceptualize science. You have to do science in a new way. Science in the old way is all about objectification. There's the observer, the detached observer, um, making observations of objective phenomena. Parapsychology can't get anywhere with that approach because you're dealing with something that goes beyond objectification. So the research that shows positive results is, you know, Statistically, they show small effects, but there's nothing dramatic there. And what I say is, why should you change the foundations of conventional science? You know, people will say, why change the foundations? If it works, don't try to fix it. My answer there is, it no longer works. And it gets me back to physics. Science as usual is not working in the heart and core of physics. I spoke about, and I've done a number of articles and I've got a couple of books where I deal with what I mentioned earlier, quantum gravity, which is the study in physics of how the laws of uh, gravitation and the laws of quantum mechanics could be brought together in a single understanding of the universe. In fact, when you did the earlier interview with me, I'm sort of remembering back, I think I got into that in that interview that we did a few years ago. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to unifying nature by unifying gravity 
and the other forces of nature like electromagnetism and the strong and weak nuclear forces. Science, I've argued and I've written, science, the old approach, the old objectifying approach to science does not work in that area. So really what I'm talking about is the need for a new kind of science, one based on a whole different philosophical foundation. What foundation? Existential phenomenology. Wow. Rooted in Taoism. Wow, I love that. So, okay, if space and time isn't what we think it is, do we have free will in that regard? That's a big issue. Uh, free will is something that I've, I've never even warmed to the issue of free will. And I'll tell you why. Because most people think about free will in terms of, am I free to, you know, or am I just controlled by deterministic forces? But the I, am I free, usually refers to an ego. Mm a separate ego. And this separate ego that aspires to be free can't relate to um, phenomena that goes beyond the separate ego. So in Taoism, for example, the whole question, am I the individual ego free? That question is eclipsed in Taoism by much broader spiritual concerns. You know, the, the whole idea is to not be dominated by the individual ego, you know? I'm dominated by my individual ego, but I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm looking for a way to not be limited only by the ego. Mm. And you may remember that uh, dialogue was a big issue for me. And the movement was started by a physicist, David Bohm, this kind mm -hmm. of dialogue. And in the dialogue groups I'm involved in, one of the things that is being done is we're looking at how we're driven by our egos. We're observing that. Not that we can erase the ego or should even want to erase the ego, but the idea is not to be blindly dominated by it, to, be, to become aware of it, to gain a little distance from it by being aware that it's operating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I think there's a relation, Bohm, David Bohm, who was a world-renowned physicist and who also started the dialogue, this dialogue movement, spoke about being able to observe yourself without objectifying yourself. So what do you have? You have in physics the fact that objectification is no longer possible in the field of quantum gravity. And you have dialogue where objectification is called into question. And um, those two seem to converge. Mm -hmm. Dialogue is a way of relating to each other. And physics is an attempt to understand the foundations of reality. And the two converge 
in calling for a new way of relating and a new way of doing science in which subject and object are intimately interwoven rather than the subject standing back and creating objects ultimately to exploit and manipulate. So I think there's a political dimension to this as well. I think a lot of our political problems and a lot of the problems having to do with the environment result from human beings objectifying each other and objectifying nature. You know, we turn each other into objects. We're not listening to each other. We're pushing our own egoic programs. Mm -hmm. And we, we're seeing the results, unfortunately. Definitely. I think, yeah, this is such a huge concept too. And I think this is when it comes to consciously relating to each other. And I guess, how can we start teaching this sort of dialogue? And how do we also teach people the nuances of ego? Because I don't think that there is anything wrong with having an ego. I think it's, it's just how you relate to your own ego and, how, and having a healthy relationship with it. And also being aware of when certain things are coming up. I think it's becoming comfortable with what's not necessarily good about you, but then recognizing when that's coming up and also recognizing when you're projecting that into the outside. So like in a political dynamic, I mean, just looking at like the last debate, the, what was it? The 2020 debate? Like that was horrific because I just think like the, the way that things are being run is just so immature or the people like you know in political like high political positions don't really practice these ways of consciously relating to one another it would be great if we can get it into into politics because the politicians are making the policies and the policies are destroying us if we don't do something about it I do, however, think that we are entering a, a world that is closer to this though, because um, for example, there's an app called, uh, oh no, I'm forgetting the name of it. It's called Clubhouse. <laughs> it's called Clubhouse. And the political conversations that go on in there are actually very progressive. You know, now and again, you'll get people like talking over each other and politics is very, it can get emotional by nature. So sometimes that's kind of what you expect. But I, being in these rooms where political dialogue is taking place, I was pretty impressed because there's a feature where you can mute yourself. And when someone is explaining their point of view, most of the time, everyone is muted and they just hear what the other person has to say. And then like one at a time, people will respond. And the more, the more that we do this, the more you recognize how people's points of views, as, as different as they can be, you can always find some sort of similarity or where you, where you can agree in one thing or another, or you can also learn something that can change your perspective a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like that. And I think 
you have to push it further so that if people aren't, if people are muted, so they can't speak, are they listening? And are they listening deeply? And are they aware of their own reactions to what they're hearing? And are they willing to share that? Just to give an example of the kind of dialogue that is being developed and taking place. Um, right now, what are my motives? this moment that we're having this conversation. Am I trying to impress you? You said, how can we go further in dialogue? So my mind went to, oh, I'm involved in some dialogue groups. Maybe you should ask Asia to um, post my email so people could contact me, that sort of thing. And, and, you know, and that's valid, but the moments I was engaged in those kinds of activities, mental activities, maybe I wasn't listening to you deeply enough. You mm. see what I'm saying? Yeah. Being aware of the way I am functioning in this moment, in real time, at a concrete level, being aware of my own process in the moment that it's unfolding as I relate to you, and sharing that awareness with you and you and others involved in that kind of dialogue environment doing the same thing. So it's, you know, it gets back to this kind of on the ground awareness. Yeah, yes, that, and that of course is like the best case scenario you can have with two people in dialogue. And it, it reminds me it, it sounds very meditative. And I actually think that how we relate to people is almost one of the best ways to have a meditative experience. If you are constantly uh, checking in with yourself to, you know, especially in moments of like high intensity or high emotional activity, those are the most challenging moments to check in with yourself and your ego. But I think the more that we can practice these modes of radical honesty with ourselves, then the more we can consciously relate, like to just be and then communicate, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. I like the uh, phrase you used earlier, radical honesty. I think you said that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It makes sense. And I think radical honesty with yourself and with the people you're relating to is crucial, critical. Yeah. So I guess, I think this is interesting because um, with schools, I am not, I know that they're heading towards being more mindful, like practicing mindfulness with the children and stuff, but like with practices like proprioceptive dialogue, um, like, because perhaps it's so esoteric and like kind of same with like parapsychology, like rather than having some curiosity towards it without like making it something bad, but also like adding validation that this is 
stuff that people are interested in and also like practices that are healthier and better for for humanity if you will like I worry that because it's so esoteric it gets kind of like pushed away from the educational system because like you said I think because we're a society that is so uh backed by science which science is science objectifies really everything like I worry that's why like we want to push away anything that's more abstract if you will yeah and you know but science is also good you know it's so it's it isn't a question of eliminating uh, conventional science entirely conventional science definitely has a use in certain areas but it has limitations as well and for certain very important enterprises we need more than what conventional science has to offer so maybe it's a question of avoiding a one-sided domination avoiding conventional science dominating so that you can't solve fundamental problems in science's own field and even when you look at the pandemic and the climate crisis conventional science has been vital in you know developing uh, the vaccine and so forth but at the same time that objectifying attitude is what gave rise to the virus to begin with and what is destroying the environment i treat nature as an object i feel detached from nature the next thing i know i'm abusing nature i'm ignoring nature and even with the pandemic the virus is said to have originated from um, people looking to exploit rare animals and putting rare animals together for the purposes of you know making them into commodities to be exploited and then you have <clears throat> a virus breaking out under those conditions mm. so this strange balance this strange uh, you know double-edged sword between science and the benefits of science and the need for a deeper kind of science that unifies subject and object, that integrates them rather than having detached subjects objectifying things, exploiting and, and using and commodifying everything. So it's tough. <laughs> it's, wow. a, it's a tough um, but it also makes sense when you're having nuanced conversations like this. And I don't think people put enough power in the nuance of everything. Because, yeah, when you talk about um, subjects that aren't necessarily hard science, aren't necessarily, you know, pure humanities, um, they just kind of put it into like a black or white box. When really like, yeah, there's an interconnectedness between everything and everything is valid and everything can be applied. So yeah, I yeah, think sure. I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, people want um, pure categories and, and you know, well-labeled boxes and life can't survive in, in that kind of world as we're seeing. 
And the main box is th that is threatening us is subject versus object. Mm. Can't keep them, can't keep splitting them. There's a flow, and we have to recognize that flow. And I'm thinking of Taoism, yep, which exemplifies the flow between subject and object. Most definitely. Wow, I learned so much in this conversation, and it was really awesome. Do you have anywhere uh, anyone can find you? Well, my um, email address is available. You know, the best place to find me is at my website. My email address is on the website, embodyingcyberspace.com is the name of the website, embodyingcyberspace.com. Great. And you can reach me through that, that way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. I really enjoyed this conversation and it's a pleasure as always. I enjoyed it immensely. Good to see you again. Good you luck too. with everything you're doing with, with crossing those boundaries. <laughs> thank you so much.